Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the ninth and final of a series of interviews focusing on the different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. We begin this episode with an interview of Bill Jolly, asking him to share his own insights into David and to reflect on some of his major achievements. Firstly, welcome, Bill, and thank you for being a part of David's memoir. Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you and to uh, share a few uh, recollections of David Blythe, whom I've known for many years. Sure. Uh, Bill, to help create a sense of context, could you please tell us how you know David and in what ways you've worked with him? Well, I first met David, it would be over 40 years ago now, when I was a very young fella, I was uh, 16, 15 years old, and I started playing uh, blind cricket. And David was the president of the Victorian Blind Cricket Association at the time, and a player on one of the other teams. So that was where I was first introduced uh, to David, but I really got to know him through our pioneering work in the formation of Blind Citizens Australia and his leadership of, of uh, that organisation so initially it was a quite a, uh, a social contact and uh, as I say, I was just a, a, a very young fellow then, just uh, finishing school and uh, he, he was uh, much older. So I didn't see very much of him, but just a, a little bit. And then, as I say, with Blind Citizens Australia, we became very close friends and, and worked uh, closely together. And that was really in 1975 that our serious kind of relationship began. Sure. Um, as you know, Bill, this podcast is focusing on David's role in establishing and promoting human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. How do you see David's role in this and how significant do you think it's been? Well, I think that uh, he's played, David has played a, uh, a significant role and I'd like to go back and just reflect a little bit about David and David's role in organisations. David was always a leader. So he was a president more than the secretary, the, the, uh, the big picture person, the get things done person, the one who would say, uh, why not? Whereas others might say, why? And his involvement, his political involvement really began I guess in the trade union movement, he came down from Queensland and worked in the factory of the 
Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. And in those days, the, they used to do piece work. Uh, they used to make uh, mats and baskets. Uh, and it was a higher, more highly skilled um, operation or activity by the workers than uh, has recently been the case where assembly and packaging was mostly done by uh, workers with uh, disabilities and blind workers in particular. And David became uh, a, uh, a representative to the Blind Workers Union, or a representative of the Blind Workers Union at the Trades Hall Council. And that's really where he learned his uh, politics. And he got a, uh, a strong sense of uh, social justice and that there were uh, that there were haves and have-nots and there were rights and wrongs and there was uh, uh, discrimination and that there was a long way to go for people who were blind or had low vision, people who were blind and vision impaired, to be really treated as uh, equal citizens. And uh, his work then came from the uh, Blind Workers' Union he was then the head of the uh, Australian Guild of Business and Professional Blind. By this time, he'd left RVIB and was uh, operating his own small business. And so he could see then the world from a, not just the side of the workers, but also the side of the small uh, employer. And then he saw that in Australia, we needed an organisation that individuals could join, people who were blind could join as a matter of right, rather than having to join a local organisation like a union or a state organisation. And so when the National Federation of Blind Citizens, as it was called then, was formed, the name was very carefully chosen to have a focus nationally. I think the Federation, because it was an organisation of individuals, that wasn't the strongest part of its name, but it was envisaged that it would be a collective of branches. Obviously, the word blind was there. And the word citizens was very important and very few other human rights organisations have actually used that word in their name. But I think it's actually a very important word because it reaches out to what uh, we all want, which is participation in our community and uh, that uh, social inclusion and to enjoy our human rights, access to education to information to employment opportunities the same as the rest of the community so that was really the underlying philosophy of the organization national federation of blind citizens formed in 1975 which is now known as blind citizens australia and it was only an organization a fledgling organization nine years old when david was who had really been the founder of NFBC with uh, associates like Hugh Jeffrey, Peter Sumner, John Machen, Phyllis Gration, and uh, I was the first secretary at the age 22. So I used to look up to these uh, fellows and, and listen to their discussions. And in 1984, we had the first joint meeting of the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind and the International Federation of the Blind, a coming together of the organisations for the blind and of the blind at the world level. There'd been two separate organisations and the meeting in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. David was one of the two delegates from Australia and uh, he was, um, well, I think he was actually the only one there as it turned out, but 
he recognised that it was important to bring the organisations together and to be active in the Asian region, and he subsequently became the president of the World Blind Union East Asia Pacific region. And a strong human rights ethos has has driven him, drove him through his time as president of the uh, World Blind Union and in his other uh, activities as well. Okay, thank you. Um, Bill, if I can get you to choose just one thing that you found most impressive about David, what would that be? I think it would be his ethos that Jack's as good as his master and that there's a problem here and we need to find a way to solve it. We need to get people talking. And I remember when there was the industrial uh, confrontations at the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind Factory in the 1980s, and David's approach was to get people talking, not to have people standing off or not to write letters, but to actually talk. And so to, to engage with people, and I think that, that that was something that he's always uh, done. He's, he's done it um, fairly but fearlessly, and uh, in that way he's, he's, uh, he's made his strong contribution. David didn't have a high-level education. He had little secondary education, no tertiary education. So... David's way of operating wasn't through writing and reading uh, long reports and, and submissions and, and complex analysis. It was to look at what were the major uh, issues and, and, to, and to cut to the chase uh, as, as quickly as, as uh, he could. Mm. In, in your opportunities to get to know David and work with him over the years... What would you say is the most surprising thing you've learnt about him? I don't know that anything ever surprised me about him, really. I think David was someone that that you always you always knew where you stood, and uh, uh, he he'd, he'd let you know what he thought. So. I suppose I suppose what one thing that surprised me is that sometimes he would he would disagree with you and he'd come back a few months later and say yes well I think that we could uh look at things that way or take that uh that approach so sometimes it was a good idea if you disagreed with David just to let things settle just to let things uh and, and let the issue uh, resurface a couple of months later and you would find there'd be a, a new way that you could, uh, you could make progress. Mm. Now, Bill, it's not as much fun just to talk about the good things about David. So this is the bit when I want you to say something about David he doesn't want you to say. It could be something he said or did or something he didn't say or do. I'm happy with a bit of scandalous gossip about David, which may have no basis in reality. 
Uh, well, you know, there are always, there's always some things that, that I think to myself, well, that will go to the grave with me and no further. And perhaps and, it should. And, 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 that's, and that's right, yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you, Bill, for your invaluable insights. This, uh, this interview will be a part of the final uh, episode of Blindness No Barrier, and I think your perspective has given an excellent general oversight uh, which will be a, a very nice way uh, of summing up and um, and reviewing back on the various parts of uh, of David's remarkable story. Thanks, John. And as I say, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to you because David Blythe has made a major contribution. Um, he he hasn't always worked from uh, the book of how to um, win friends when you influence people. But nonetheless, he has uh, influenced people and he has, he has made a major and a very selfless contribution to the uh, well-being of blind and visually impaired people uh, in Australia and around the world through his leadership of World Blind Union. And uh, I think the world is a much better place and the situation of people who are blind and uh, vision impaired is, is much improved for the contribution that David Blythe has made. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you. Good morning, David, to the last of this series of podcasts in respect of, uh, of your memoir. Um, one of the things that uh, I thought would be a good thing to talk about at the final episode is to reflect on the recognition that you've had for work in various aspects of your life, and uh, and perhaps talk a little bit about how those how those awards eventuated. Now, the most significant of those would be the Order of Australia, and I thought that might be a good place to start. Yes, um, Blind Citizens Australia actually put me forward for that, as I understand it. It had to be done by individ individuals, but, well, and Marianne Diamond was the uh, executive officer at the time. And unbeknown to me, um, she put me forward, and I received a letter in October or November, I think, asked me if I'd accept. And I was quite surprised, but I was delighted. And uh, that was done in recognition of my work both within Australia and internationally. And that is why I was given the officer of the Order of Australia and um, you know it's one of those things that um, you treasure uh, but you really um, do wonder at times and uh, how you do get to this stage but uh, to think that your own government and your own people do recognise the work you've done is very satisfying I have to say. Now how does Officer of the Order of Australia vary from other Order of Australia awards? Well, as I understand it, there's four levels. There's the Order of Australia medal, there's the member of the Order of Australia, and there's an officer of the Order of Australia and a companion of the Order of Australia. And that's the order in which the seniority is. I was in the second level. Well, that's now since the Mr. Abbott's uh, knights and dames have disappeared. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. And um, 
talk us through the process. I mean, there must have been quite a um, an elaborate awarding of the of the award. It was uh, quite exciting, actually. Um, my award was um, in the Australian Order uh, Australia Day order, um, orders in two thousand and two. And um, it was confirmed and um, presented to me by John Landy, who was at the time Governor of Victoria. And that was a thrill because I've always been a great admirer of John Landy, one of our great athletes. And um, we, I went along to Government House with a, quite a number of other people. Fortunately, being a bee in Blythe, I was about the second or third one to be called up. So rather than being in the room and not knowing what was going on, I was actually uh, already in and heard all the others receiving their awards and what they received them for, and particularly the bravery ones and uh, and some of those that did community service. It was quite humbling, actually, and uh, it, it was a very exciting and but uh, a very humbling experience. One realised then just how many people there must be out there that are doing things and receiving recognition, but there must be multitudes more who are not. And some of the bravery awards were were, were harrowing, actually, what they'd done to save lives and things like that. Yes. Um, and, and then other awards that you've received really for a lifetime commitments both to the World Blind Union and also the Lions Club. Yes, um, in year 2000 the World Blind Union uh, brought in a recognition medal called the Louis Braille Medal in recognition of Louis Braille as the man who made literacy possible for blind people. Um, The first year it was presented, and it's once every four years, um, they decided to put two out that year rather than just the one and Pedro Sarita who was the Secretary General of the World Blind Union for a number of years and myself were the first two re- recipients and there's uh, only they appoint one every four years now since then. And um, then also sorry the Lions Club? Well Lions Club's international I'm a life member of those them and um, and my club gave me a Melvin Jones Award which is the highest award you can receive as an individual in Lions. Uh, Melvin Jones was the founder of Lions in America in in 1917 and they struck this medal in his name in the 70s and uh, it's for um, outstanding service to the organisation particularly over a period of time and uh, I was given that for the work I'd done in uh, the early days in Lions, I did a lot of work in Safe Sight in the MBAP programs, but I, in general, I was um, been in a Lions Club now for over forty years and have been an active member all that time. Now, the other thing, David, is that apart from the awards that you've received and the recognition that you've received, there's also an award in your own name. There's the David Blythe Award. Now, I don't believe you've actually won that, and it would look a bit dodgy if you did. Um, but perhaps you can tell us about that. Well, I think I've had a number of surprises in my life, but that was probably the biggest one I've ever received. Um, that happened at a convention in Adelaide, and uh, it's when I was elected as president of the World Blind Union, and um, 
the um, I was sitting there and they made this announcement that Blind Citizens Australia were creating a national award for not only for the members of Blind Citizens Australia, it had to be for anyone who'd made a significant contribution to the lives of blind people within Australia. And um, I thought this was a great idea, they were going to make this award and all that, and then uh, suddenly they announced that it was going to be called the David Blythe Blind Citizens Australia National Award. And uh, I must admit I was stunned when they did that, and uh, I was um, quite humbled by it actually. And uh, to say I was surprised is a very understatement. Mm. Well, look, it's a great but a thrill. Yeah, yeah, it's a great testimony to the level of respect that people have for you and the work that you've done throughout your lifetime. Something yes. that we spoke about uh, in the last episode um, was the Jeffrey Blythe Foundation, and I thought perhaps in this being our last um, program, it's an opportunity to talk about that in a little bit more detail about uh, how that came about um, and what its uh, what its purposes are and um, uh, what um, what it is that uh, that motivated you and um, Jeffrey to um, to put it together. Well, it really was an idea of the late Hugh Jeffrey, uh, who was a fantastic supporter for blind people and uh, many blind uh, adults today will give testimony to his as a teacher and as a friend and a mentor and Hugh was a very strong supporter of Blind Citizens Australia from its inception. Uh, Hugh had this idea of having a foundation to try and create a foundation that would secure the future of Blind Citizens Australia and see if we can make it independent of any organisation, government or otherwise for funding. Um, so in 1994, 1995, Hugh discovered that I had won the Iwahashi Award, the same as he had from Blind People in Asia, and it was a Japanese award which had uh, a monetary contribution with it. Um, the monetary contribution sounded a lot in yen, but in Australian dollars it was probably about $3,000. And uh, that, that doesn't really go very far when you're trying to run an organisation. But Hugh's idea was, he said, well look, uh, why don't we have a, a foundation, we'll call it the Jeffrey Blythe Foundation. Uh, he put in that 3000 and I'll put in my 3000 from when I won it. and. Uh, but that'll be the beginning of it, but Hugh actually put a lot more money into it later. And uh, that was the genesis, um, and uh, today that foundation's worth over a million dollars, and it does fund VCA to a small extent, about $50,000 a year, uh, and it is growing. Uh, and that's still the purpose uh, of that foundation, is eventually to try and make VCA self-funded. It's a dream, uh, and other members have contributed over the years. There's been several bequests that have been paid into that. Uh, people have made donations to it, and um, it does have tax deductibility. And uh, now it's sounding like an ad, David. <laughs> but but why not? This is our this is our opportunity. Well, it will if anyone wanted to do something to say. That they want to support the work I did to support Blind Citizens Australia would be the best testimony they could do. Yes, yeah. The um, 
So the foundation obviously has received support from other sources and continues to do so. Uh, there's there's no government contribution to that, is there? Oh no, nothing. Uh, though we do have tax deductibility and uh, gift uh, tax deductibility, so there is a contribution in that regard. But as for financial funding, no. And. Are you the sole administrator of that trust? No, there's um, there's four trustees. Uh, I'm one of them, and um, my son Ashley is another one, and Bill Jolly and Michael Simpson are the other two. We're looking now at expanding that foundation to <coughs> actually uh, see if we can incorporate other organisations into it that would help in that funding. There's a there's quite a considerable amount of money that's been involved in state bodies for blind people in Australia and if we could combine all of them together we could make a much bigger foundation and uh, that way it would be under the control of blind citizens or an independent board but um, its sole responsibility is to support blind citizens Australia. David this is perhaps an opportunity for you to reflect back on the episodes that we've done and the various uh, things that you've done and achieved and experienced throughout your life and perhaps draw some highlights and um, particular special moments that you feel have been most important to you. Yes, um, I think a title we've used here is Blindness No Barrier I think in a way that um, blindness to me has been maybe a a good thing um, because I would never experience the experiences I've had since I was blinded had I not been blinded. I I had to learn new skills um, and I did learn those. I met my wife and we have three great kids which uh, I'm very proud of and uh, They've all been part, a very strong part of my life and probably that's the highlight of my life as those four people and now they're offspring of course but um, and they've all been a part of this journey from the inception. Um, they really have been a great support to me. Uh, they've never held me back from doing things and it's must have been to their detriment from time to time. Uh, I know that um, we had a stable uh, life because we lived in the one house for 56 years and um, that was a a great help to me in the fact that we weren't moving around and doing those things. I think my earlier family, my brothers and sisters have always been quite supportive. Uh, I think they've been a bit stunned at some of the things I've done because I've been in Melbourne and they were mostly in the Northern Territory or some far-flung part of Australia and didn't really see a lot of what we were doing until later in my life. But they've always been very strong supporters, my mother and father. Um, My mother in particular was a very important part of my life. But I think joining organisations like BCA and... um, the Blinds Clubs International, um, the sporting bodies I've been involved with have all contributed to making me the person that I am. And I believe that uh, 
my involvement with uh, government at, from time to time has taught me that um, you must negotiate from a, from a strong position if you want to be successful, but you must always be aware that the other person has a view and whether you agree with it or not, it must be considered and you have to um, be reasonably tolerant, which a lot of people would be very surprised to hear me say that I was tolerant. But um, I, I think I am a tolerant person at times. Um, I've made a lot of very good friends internationally as well as nationally, um, both in the blindness and non-blindness fields. It's um, been a good journey. It's been a journey that um, I feel has been made possible, particularly by the support I've had from Jess and um, the three children over that period. I know that there's a number of people that have done a lot of work, more than I have for blind people in this country, but at least I've been part of it and I've been proud to be there. If we were to look at your um, your professional career, what would be the things that you'd pull out of that as as highlights of your of your work? I think the early days, um, I learned from the Blind Workers Union that um, there had to be better ways of doing things. Um, I I would think the time I worked for the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind was a very important part of my life. Um, I think we were able to um, change a lot of ideas at that time. Um, we pushed much harder for training of blind people in computers and uh, other skills. I was a strong supporter of the um, supported work program at RVIB because I believe there was not the manufacturing jobs that some of those people were would have had to do if they were in open industry and that industry wasn't available to them so I, I was a strong believer that there was a need for that sort of support. I, I was disappointed in the wages we had to pay but um, that was another issue uh, and the type of work we were getting wasn't as good as I'd liked but um, that was one of those areas. I think the chance I had to um, take Seeing Eye Dogs Australia out of the position they were in and uh, sell all their properties off and put them into a single property which is even bigger today than it was then. Um, and in that uh, period I think um, the highlight was probably that um, I did work hard to give blind people an opportunity to excel themselves and to uh, get experience in management, in organising um, groups of people. So that was the main thing I wanted to do. And then, David, in terms of um, advocacy and highlights in respect of advocacy for people who are blind or visually impaired, not necessarily just in terms of your own activities and achievements, but what would you identify as the highlights in terms of uh, advocacy and successes for people uh, who are blind, both in Australia and worldwide? I think um, the issues that face blind people in Australia are, um, are mobility and employment. 
and education. Mobility is um, is a very important part of our lives because we our, we live in a suburban environment and uh, our public transport system is based in the street virtually so moving around the the city is important to us i see issues there with the silent motor cars uh, that are coming the big changes in advocacy in australia came uh, when the government became when the federal government became involved and that was during the whitlam years um, and I think that created a, a, an atmosphere and an expectation by people with disabilities that there was a better way and that things could be made to be changed. And it, with change, we all thought it would necessarily mean improvement. Uh, that was the, the forerunner of it, and I believe that the development of... Um, individual organisations uh, of people with disability and group organisations where they group together to form stronger groups all came from that period of time. Up till then we'd been very uh, uh, individualist rather than as a group. Some of the changes that came were in uh, employment uh, opportunities um, more emphasis was made on funding training programs. Uh, training became quite an important issue. Um, some employment um, subsidies were made to give blind, blind and other disabled people opportunities. And some of those programs worked well, some didn't work quite so well. But the overall uh, follow-up of it was that there was a move that did give people with disabilities some opportunities. Some of the things that for blind people was the uh, development of technology that has helped quite significantly. But then, of course, one of the big areas of employment for blind people was as um, switchboard operators. Those jobs virtually disappeared. Uh, Factory jobs basically disappeared with the industry changing, so education became more important, and um, training in the use of computers and computer-related types of work were important. I, I don't know the figures, but I would assume that the employment rate is probably not much different now to what it was, uh, say, 20 years ago but more blind people would be looking for work now and probably more people are doing part-time work. I, I notice that um, quite a number of blind musicians have seemed to have got a start uh, and um, a lot of them do busking but others do gigs at different places so music has always been a, an employer of blind people and I think it still is. Um, but some of the other areas um, that we do have that help us is um, the use of audio description in the theatres. Um, that's in a small way at the moment, but it is growing. We have had trials of uh, audio description on television. It does work effectively overseas in some parts of the world. We're a bit slow to start it here, but it, it is coming and will come. Um, that will make a, a difference. Uh, transport um, 
regulations, which is um, a 25-year plan, I think we're probably about 15 years into it now, does mean that there are more audio, audio description um, in buses and trains. That helps blind people with mobility. Um, generally, I believe that um, we are working towards stronger links with other disability groups and uh, from there um, I'm not too sure what the future does hold. I think the NDIS is important. How we implement it I, I don't know, it's not something I've been involved in but working on the experience from overseas where these type of programs have been in place for a number, quite a number of years, particularly in Europe they seem to have given blind people much more access to um, employment opportunities. So um, I can only hope that it will do the same here. Whether we ever get it right between our federal government and our state governments, I think is one of the weaknesses in Australia. And um, because the divided uh, responsibilities and the lack of responsibility, I suppose, uh, is a problem for blind people in Australia. It always has been, and I believe it always will be. The, if we can continue just to look back a little bit at the world stage and advocacy for people with disabilities, and uh, blind people in particular, what would you identify as being the most important achievements during your time uh, as an advocate of people uh, who are blind at the at the international level? I think some of the United Nations um, decrees and um, the standards that they brought in and were adopted by countries were important. Um, and uh, of course in recent times the Marrakesh Agreement, which is the um, freeing up of copyright on recorded or uh, uh, materials that's in an alternative format being um, exempted from copyright, uh, has been a major achievement. We've um, worked a lot in helping in um, uh, developing countries. We do a lot of work there. But mostly I believe that uh, it's from some of the government um, ratification of instruments that the United Nations have passed. More of awareness than anything else. Um, there's still major issues in the world of poverty for people who are blind and have low vision. And there, I think for the foreseeable future there will be. Um, the, the idea that we have that the user pays is a good strong ethic in Australia, but in some ways it is detrimental to us as people. So I don't know, it's um, one of those issues that I think the future is something that I'm not too sure about employment for the future. I'm not too sure about employment for anybody for the future. I think with mechanisation and uh, uh, the way that uh, computerisation is taking over and the way that uh, jobs are being done by robots and uh, those things, I, I, I'm not too sure what it's going to be. Uh, I know people say that it gives great opportunities in other fields, but I'm not too sure that globalisation does give those many opportunities. Um, uh, I don't know. It's one of those questions that I think about from time to time, but I don't know what's going to happen. And then thinking about advocacy for blind people today, both 
in Australia and internationally. Where do you see that being today and um, going into the future? I think for blind people in Australia, the it's more about access to the community. With, uh, we mentioned earlier, audio description is one area, access to um, public transport is another, access to uh, employment training is another. They're, they're the issues that uh, I believe that are facing blind people and that's where BCA and uh, it does place its emphasis. Um, I think uh, that um, protection under um, by law for the rights of people with disabilities to have a full participation in the activities of the community. But the most important thing is to become a valued member of the com- of your community, to be accepted in your community as a um, worthwhile contributing citizen, even if that con- contribution is as a volunteer but to be part of the community and have access to it. And in that regard, I think Australia is very good. Um, I, I can only go from personal experience, but and a lot of experience I've had with other friends, that blind people are accepted quite comfortably in the community. There are some issues at times. But um, no, I, I think the access to, as I said, employment, access to the wider community, access to information, access to education. They're the issues that blind people will be facing in the future. Have They've been the issues for 50 years. They'll be the issues for the next 50 years, I think. And at an international level, do you feel that um, advocacy for people who are blind is is strong and effective? Or do you still see major work that needs to be done in that area? I believe they, they've got the same issues we have um, most parts of the world, um, some parts even more so. I think access to education and good health services is a big issue in many parts of the world. But in the developed countries, such as the North America and Europe, um, I think their access issues are the main issues that they face. Um, and that's where it all is. Um, I, I'm not too sure that there is such a thing as a as a an all-round common person. I, I think everyone is different, and each country has specific requirements, but they all fit into the access field, I believe. And then, as a way of uh, bringing our final episode to a close, perhaps you could reflect with us about how you see the future of blindness as a as a condition will it will it exist in the future will it exist in different ways um how how do you see that well maybe how i see it is how i hope it will be um i believe that medical science is capable of eliminating a lot of avoidable blindness um I believe that the macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, uh, and a number of those conditions that are related to people being onset blindness later in life uh, will become uh, curable. Um, I know in macular degeneration now, in the cases of wet, that they do have ways of arresting it, um, but that will change in the future, I believe. Um, 
So I believe blindness for people who are ageing should become uh, less of a, less effective. Um, as for uh, congenital blindness, well, that has been on the decrease for a number of years, and I think uh, medical science is um, is gradually uh, overcoming a lot of that. But there will probably always be some genetic genetic issues that will have an effect there. Trauma is a case of issue. Uh, blindness, when um, I was younger, was uh, when younger men particularly came from motor car accidents. Well, the seat belts and different types of glass in windscreens has changed that now, but it has brought with it um, acquired brain damage. So, um, you know, these are issues there. So, I think blindness will become a less um, there'll be less blind people in the population less as a percentage of the population but there'll always be a, a number it's a low number now but it'll become a lower number and I think medical science will be the main reason for that the how that will be affect people in the future I'm not too sure huh? but I think you'll find that Total blindness is quite a small percentage of the overall people that are classified as vision impaired or, in the latter term now, low vision. Uh, and if there was some better training, I think there would be less need for services in that area. A lot of people have talked about the development of bionics in, the, in creating artificial sight. For blind people, do you see that as made, that being a game changer? Oh yes, it it, it will come. Um, virtual vision will will certainly appear. We've done it with hearing, um, with the bionic ear, and um, I'm quite certain it'll be done with the eye. One only has to look at the development that's happened in uh, prosthetics for people with um, um, leg amputees. Um, the guy in South Africa that could run faster than anyone, any able-bodied person, and he had two artificial prothesis. So, uh, yes, it'll come. Um, it's a matter of uh, understanding the technology of the human brain, and they're working on that all the time. And uh, it, it will, it will happen. Uh, how effective it's going to be um, will depend on how much money is put in to make it work and what the demand is for it and uh, at this stage uh, I think they've got prototypes now which are not very clear but they are creating shadows and they are creating forms and uh, but it'll only be for um, a specific um, types of blindness um, I think they still need to be optic nerve and things like that but as they understand the brain or and how it works maybe they will find a way and fixing this I believe they will and I, I don't believe it'll be that far away I, I would think if I could live to be a hundred uh, that's 18 years time uh, I think I will see it happen you know some form or other I think it's that close hmm. uh, thank you David then in conclusion I'd like to thank you David for allowing me to be a part of this journey it's been a privilege uh, and also uh, I personally have found your story to be uh, fascinating and 
remarkable and an extraordinary series of life achievements uh, within family, within career, but also within changing the nature of blindness advocacy and blindness services very much for the better, both at a national and also at an international level. Thank you, John, and uh, <laughs> I've got to thank you for being so patient to uh, to do this and to Rob who's doing the editing. Uh, uh, I don't know how he's been listening to it for hour after hour. Um, my voice, uh, I think, is one of those voices that must grate on you after a while. <laughs> but uh, no, thank you, John, and I appreciate the work you've done on this. And uh, it's something I've dreamt about doing for a while but never got around to it. But um, the day you rang me up and said you wanted to do it, it's all work from there. Thank you. Thanks again, David. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.